You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. This episode is a bit different than our usual ones. Instead of an interview, you'll be hearing some of the discussion from the 27th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference, the committee's annual conference, from November of 2017. This is an excerpt from a panel discussion on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and Section 702 of that act. The speakers, in order of their appearance, will be the moderator, Robert Litt, who is counsel at Morrison and Forrester and the former general counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Alexander Joel, the chief of the Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy, and Transparency, currently at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Professor Laura Donahue, who is also the director of the Center of National Security and the Law at Georgetown Law and is on the FISA Court amicus panel, Liza Goitin, co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center, Susan Hennessy, managing editor of Lawfare, and Jamil Jaffer, the director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. This is a portion of the panel, but to watch a video of the entire FISA discussion from the conference, please visit our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, where we have posted a link to the full video. Please enjoy this discussion on FISA. We have a lot of ground to cover on this panel. Um, I have given the panelists plenty of warning that in order to keep the discussion moving, uh, I'm going to enforce a three-minute rule uh, quite strictly, and I'm going to cut people off. I'm going to um, adopt the rule that they do in the Supreme Court, which is basically, uh, I'm going to tell you to stop, you can finish your sentence, and then we're going to move on. Uh, Because I think with the the range of views we have here and the area we have to cover, there'll be plenty of time for people to make their point. So uh, with those as preliminaries, let me jump in. Um, as people here probably know, the major topic of discussion related to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act right now is Section 702 of FISA, which is scheduled to sunset at the end of this year unless Congress acts to reauthorize it. Um, Alex, can you give a three-minute summary of what Section 702 is? Sure. <laughs> Section 702 in three minutes. Here we go. So Section 702 is obviously a section of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Passed in 2008, as Bob said, it is set to expire at the end of this year. It is a very valuable authority uh, for the U.S. government in the foreign intelligence arena. It enables the government to target non-U.S. persons who are reasonably believed to be located outside the United States with the compelled assistance of communications providers in order to obtain foreign intelligence that falls within particular categories that have been certified um, to the court in, in, a, uh, in an annual certification process. So that was a very long run-on sentence in my attempt to cut out half of my prepared remarks. Um, <laughs> the, the targeting must be done pursuant to targeting procedures. These are detailed legal uh, step-by-step processes that the uh, government must follow in order to identify somebody that they want to collect intelligence on who is located outside of the United States. <clears throat> the procedures enable analysts to make a reasonable belief determination that the person is a non-U.S. person located outside of the United States. Once you target somebody, of course, you will obtain communications of that person with other people. The uh, act allows 
uh, for uh, or provides for how do we protect information that we receive from these uh, from these targeting procedures. And these are called minimization procedures, and they must be designed to minimize the retention, the collection, retention, and dissemination of information concerning U.S. persons that might be incidentally collected when you target a non-U.S. person overseas. Um, the, the minimization procedures include things like retention uh, limits, you know, how long you can retain the data, and uh, dissemination controls, what you can do when you disseminate the information to others, um, and query controls, how do you query the data in order to identify intelligence of value. Um, there are certain prohibitions. If you want to target a U.S. person, you must obtain an individual individual court order based on probable cause under one of the other sections of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. You cannot use FISA 702 for that. You cannot intentionally collect um, wholly domestic communications. Um, you cannot do reverse targeting. That means that you can't target somebody overseas if the purpose of that targeting is really to obtain the communications of a particular known person inside the United States. Um, there are uh, two types of uh, collection that generally occur. Um, one is called the downstream. This is the one that most people are familiar with. You go to a communications carrier, you provide them the email address or phone number or other identifier that you are use, using to uh, target the uh, individual overseas, and um, that carrier gives you the, uh, effectuates that acquisition for you. Sort of think of an email provider and going to, to them for an email account of somebody. Um, the other form of collection is upstream. This occurs over the internet backbone, and in that type of collection, again, you're focusing on a selector, but the communication obtained through the uh, internet backbone provider's uh, assistance could be to, from, or previously, it could have been about that targeted selector. So that selector might be included in an email, say, let's say, between two people and saying, hey, did you know that such and so has changed his email address and here's his new email address? Well, under upstream, uh, that could have been acquired previously with so-called about collection. So that... Alex mentioned it briefly, but would you explain a little bit more how, given that Section 702 targets foreigners... How does U.S. person information come to be collected, and what are the issues that this raises? Yeah, so, uh, is that on? Yeah, thanks very much, Bob, for the invitation to be here. Um, so, you're right to point out that the issue is U.S. persons under the Fourth Amendment, non-U.S. persons based overseas without a substantial connection to the U.S. have no Fourth Amendment protections. So, the issue really is on U.S. persons, and it's not just collection. There are three areas where this comes up. First, in the area of collection, it comes up in regard to what's called incidental collection, as well as in what Alex was ending with there, to, from, or about collection. Uh, the second area it comes up is in regard to the retention of U.S. persons' information, and the third area is in regard to querying these databases either about U.S. persons or using U.S. persons' information. So in those three areas, there are very serious constitutional questions that present themselves. Um, one way to address these is, first of all, to end to, from, or about collection. Second, to make it unlawful to retain U.S. persons' information without going back to the court for an order. This is how collection is handled under 50 U.S.C. 1802, where you have a foreign power in control of a particular facility and U.S. persons' information is incidentally obtained, so it would make the statute consistent. The third is in controlling queries, so making it illegal to 
query these databases without going first to a court and demonstrating probable cause, for instance, that, that an individual is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, or probable cause that a crime is being uh, or has been or is about to be committed, uh, and only querying it for crimes related to foreign intelligence purposes. So one of the big issues right now in front of uh, Congress is the fact that the FBI can use these databases and query them for completely unrelated criminal purposes, which really amounts to an end run around Fourth Amendment protections uh, otherwise granted under Title III and really respected in Titles I and III of FISA as well. Uh, another solution that these uh, bills suggest is to prohibit parallel construction. That's the process by which information uh, revealing evidence of criminal activity is obtained through 702, and then the gov- they go to a law enforcement agency and a parallel trail is constructed so that 702 never appears in court or is challengeable. Uh, and a final area where this can be adjusted is in FISC uh, alterations. So changing the court or the amici process or appearing before the court, the appellate process, in order to bring the, the statute further within constitutional bounds. Uh, I know it, later we'll probably get into the foreign, the so-called foreign intelligence exception. Uh, there is no domestic foreign intelligence <laughs> exception for U.S. persons on U.S. soil. All of the foreign intelligence exceptions, when you go back and you look at everything from Barona and La Chapelle um, and U.S. versus Bin Laden, uh, these are criminal cases dealing with U.S. persons overseas where there's not a warrant requirement, but there is a reasonableness requirement. In the national security realm, starting with U.S. versus U.S. District Court, you see the court say that for purposes of domestic security on U.S. soil, you have to have some sort of procedure approximating uh, a warrant requirement. That's how we got FISA in the first place in 1978. Uh, and in my view, that should be regarded under Youngstown Jackson's concurrence as a constitutional moment when Congress laid down what is constitutionally required for U.S. persons. So in resealed case in 2002, this was the case. Uh, it does not hold that there's a foreign intelligence exception. It just said that it's that it's consistent with uh, traditional FISA, right. consistent with the fourth. Okay. Eliza, one of the issues uh, that the U.S. person communication uh, uh, collection raises is the fact that the intelligence community has so far uh, indicated that it's unable to actually say how many U.S. person communications have been collected under Section 702. Um, both, as I, as I understand it, both the Wyden Hall bills and the House Judiciary bills require the intelligence community either to disclose how many U.S. person communications are collected or to explain why they can't do that. Um, is that good enough? Uh, and if not, why not? Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Is this on? Uh, so, I, I'm pleased that, the, that these bills uh, require not, not a count, but an estimate of the number of Americans' communications that are collected uh, under 702. I am not so pleased that they give the Director of National Intelligence an out. Uh, in all of these debates about 702, the government is constantly emphasizing that foreigners are the only targets of surveillance and that any collection of Americans' communications is purely incidental. And these terms, target and incidental, are terms of art with specialized legal meanings. But most Americans are not lawyers outside this room. And when they hear this description, they're likely to conclude, and I know from my Twitter feed that they do conclude, that collection of Americans' communications is not only kind of accidental, but quite rare. So an estimate is needed to pierce the legalese and to give a truer picture of the impact of this authority on Americans. It's not enough to say, well, we have minimization procedures, so it really doesn't matter 
how many communications we acquire up front. Uh, as we'll be discussing later, uh, these minimiz minimization procedures actually do, do allow fairly significant access to Americans' communications. But even under the strictest limits on use and access, it's inherently problematic to be gathering massive amounts of American-sensitive personal information and having them sitting in government databases where they're vulnerable to hacking, to data theft, uh, or to misuse, even if unintentional misuse. So an estimate is important and it's feasible. Uh, certainly when it comes to downstream collection, which is basically stored emails, it's a lot trickier because stored emails uh, generally aren't going to include routing information beyond the actual email address. But for two other 702 programs, uh, generating an estimate should actually be fairly straightforward. There's telephony collection. The government can use the country code to, uh, as a proxy for whether someone is inside or outside the United States. Of course, it's not perfect, uh, but it's sufficient for a rough estimate, which is all anyone has asked for. Uh, then there's upstream internet collection. And that's particularly interesting because to comply with the Fourth Amendment, the FISA court requires the government to use automated means to filter out wholly domestic communications. And according to the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, the government uses IP addresses and other comparable technical means to identify the location of the communicants as being inside or outside the United States. Again, it's not perfect. But according to the government, it works well enough to comply with the Constitution. And if it's good enough for that purpose, I would say it's good enough to give lawmakers and the public an idea of the impact of this program on their communications. Um, Susan, do you want to uh, argue the other side here? Uh, why shouldn't uh, this, uh, or what, shouldn't or can't uh, this be done? Yeah, so I don't think it's sort of a question of the government shouldn't be forced to produce a number that it has. Um, really, it's about how it's going to arrive at that number and whether or not that number is actually sort of informative of the American people, or informative to the American people. So um, you know, these targets don't self-identify as a U.S. person. Um, you're necessarily going to be have to using some form of, of proxies and, uh, and a number of presumptions in order to say, okay, we reasonably believe this category is U.S. persons and we reasonably believe this category is not U.S. persons. Um, and so really the issue there is uh, is agreement about the set of presumptions that should exist. Um, so if uh, if the government gets its way, uh, I think that uh, the the critique will be that it is an under inclusive number, that it doesn't fairly capture uh, uh, people who might well be uh, within the United States. Um, and so I don't I don't know that it satisfies sort of some of those. Um, uh, privacy advocacy or, or transparency uh, concerns. Um, on the alternative side, if we sort of take the, the biggest possible uh, net, uh, it becomes an over-inclusive number. Um, and that likewise is not sort of informative to the American people about uh, how many communications uh, uh, the government's actually collecting here. Um, so, so really the question here is uh, transparency is not the end. It's a means to the end. Uh, certainly I, I would share Eliza's goal of, of thinking that the American people should understand uh, the scope of this collection, that incidental is something different than, than whoops, um, right? It's something that we know is going to occur um, that is not particularly rare. That doesn't mean that it's 
improper um, uh, and in, uh, is actually necessary to this form of collection. Uh, but really, it is about we need sort of that threshold agreement on how we're going to come up with these numbers um, in a way that the government actually is going to be able to achieve that. Um, the other issue is if you uh, create these sorts of requirements in a statute, uh, so the government actually has to meet them as a matter of law, you could create conditions in which you actually are being more intrusive into the data. You have to interact and look at and analyze this data to a greater degree, um, raising the level of privacy invasions for the purpose of complying with a statute. Um, so we don't want to create a situation where we actually have uh, inadvertently created additional privacy concerns by virtue of wanting to, to reach these transparency metrics. So, uh, Bob, can I just jump in? So um, I, this, is a, this has been a very important discussion, of course, that we've been closely involved in over the last couple of years. Um, we took a, a very hard look at how do, you, how do you come up with an estimate? How do you come up with a proxy? Can you look at it? Can you look at IP addresses, other identifiers? Is, there, is the information available in NSA to come up with a, an informative, accurate, um, and non-misleading estimate? And uh, we concluded after looking at it for, for quite a long time that there was simply not a feasible way to do this. Uh, we did tried different things, and those have been briefed um, in, class, in closed sessions to the Hill. Um, so the committees have been informed of, uh, in detail about all of the efforts that, that were uh, undertaken. Um, so if, if the technical information were readily available, that's one thing. But it's another where it's ambiguous and you have to do additional research. And that additional research is my concern and is the concern of the NSA Privacy Office as well because you are now asking NSA to find out more information about people they otherwise do not have a foreign intelligence interest in finding out, and that could be potentially intrusive. Um, and on the upstream, I'll just point out uh, that, that it, the, the prohibition is against wholly domestic communications, so the counting exercises can sometimes be easier from that perspective because you're looking at whether or not it's a, it, there is some indication that one of the communicants is outside the United States and therefore it's not wholly domestic versus trying to identify the location or nationality of each communicant. But Alex, why, why, can't you, why can't you explain to the public what it is you've done to estimate these numbers and why the numbers are misleading? I understand you've briefed this to the Hill in a classified setting, techniques you've utilized. Why, why can't they be explained publicly? I, don't, I mean, it's, it strikes me that whatever you're doing to count, there can't be something classified about the way you're counting or the way you're estimating. Why, why is that? That so, doesn't make sense. Some of the, so some of, the, uh, some of our specific capabilities and limitations remain classified, you know, in terms of what we, what, what information does NSA have um, that could, could lend itself to, to measurement and counting. It, revealing that could lead very sophisticated people, many of you are on this, in this audience or on this panel, to figure out what exactly NSA is doing to do some of this stuff. So that's the reason. However, as the transparency officer, I fully favor being more transparent, and that's no, no, something I, that we're pursuing. So, I mean, it strikes, so like, this, this strikes me as, as, a, as sort of a variant. I, I mean, I worry a little about this because, you know, I've spent, a lot of us spent a lot of time defending sort of the government's position on, on transparency and on, on, on what we reveal about our collection and protecting sources and methods. You know, this reminds me of sort of the, I think, the same mistake that we made. And again, I'm not, I'm not I, I haven't read the classified because I'm, I'm out of access. I haven't read the classified reasons why you don't think you can count, explain the counting publicly. But, you know, when we, when we first looked at the 215 program um, or what became the 215 program, you know, we assumed, we took as a matter of faith that if you revealed the fact that we were collecting this tremendous amount of metadata, right, uh, that, that you, would, you had to keep it secret, had to be classified because it was such a sensitive program. Looking back, to be completely honest with you, I now, I now think that was a mistake. And the reason I think it was a mistake was because looking back, I think we've realized that 
if we had done that program right and we would really collected all the metadata all the time, um, there was no way to evade that program. Right? You either communicated to the United States and your metadata was there, or you didn't. And so there would have been very little sources or methods problems in revealing the fact that we had the metadata collection because there's no method for evasion. So I guess I would press a little bit more on that and say I, I, it strikes me as hard to believe that we can't find a non-capability revealing way to talk about why this is so hard. Because you're not going to convince, I don't think, the American people that you can't estimate the number of Americans who are affected in, in a non-misleading way. Now, there may be privacy reasons not to. I think Susan has laid out some really good reasons why, from a privacy perspective, you're going you're gonna, to may do more damage to privacy if you start doing that research. But I, I find it hard to and you can't reveal that methodology without, without sort of blowing up sources of methods. Can I pile on? Because <laughs> that's so, what you want well, us to Liza, do. But before you do, know, I just want to put a, a slight question to you to, to ask you to deal with, with okay. which is we already have enough information out there to know that the number of U.S. person communications collected is non-trivial. Um, there was an opinion by Judge Bates a number of years ago which looked at a very small section of uh, a small sliver of Section 702 collection, and then and the number of U.S. persons was in, the, as I recall, in the tens of thousands. That was purely um, domestic, and that practice I, 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 has stopped. To, but, but, but my point is, we know the number is non-trivial. For, for the purposes of, of determining what the policy ought to be, what difference does it make whether the number of U.S. person collection collected is 100,000 or 10 million? Well, we know that it's non-trivial. I don't think most Americans actually know that because, again, the language they're hearing over and over from government officials is not, look, there's a non-trivial amount of collection here. I've never seen a public statement by an official in a, in a, in a sort of media context where ordinary Americans would be looking at it that says that. What it says is we're only targeting foreigners. Any collection of Americans' communications is incidental. Those are the words we hear over and over. And non-trivial can mean different things. 10,000 communications being collected every year versus 10 million, that could make a huge difference to a lot of Americans. I think they might see that program very, very differently. So a sense of the scale here, a sense of how many zeros we're talking about in practical terms could have a major effect on how Americans feel about this program. And frankly, in a democracy, that's what matters. And so this is information I think that the public has a right to have. I actually agree with Jamil, which is fun <laughs> and, and, and unique and, and, but but the one but I would add that that in addition to explaining in more detail why it's quote unquote not possible or what's been tried I still haven't heard an explanation of why the automated count which involves no you know, transgression of privacy that happens in upstream collection not count but the automated determination of what is a domestic communication and what isn't couldn't work in this context. I heard Alex just say, well, we only have to know about one communicant in, in that context. Okay, but if that method works to determine if one communicant is a U.S. person, it works to determine if the other one is. And this is an automated process. It's not, you know, a labor-intensive... So I still haven't heard a reason why it can't be done you know, without any intrusion on privacy. To the extent there might have to be some manual review, I will say that the privacy community is unanimous that a one-time sampling with certain safeguards would be a net privacy gain. And when you have dozens of privacy groups signing letters saying that, and then you have the NSA saying, oh, but it would be a privacy violation, listen to the privacy advocates. 
Laura, you want to say something briefly? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bite. Um, <laughs> I'll bite. I disagree with, uh, with both of you. Um, uh, <laughs> um, he told us to do that. No, well, um, but not specifically what to disagree on, but to, but to be free to, to say it. Um, and the reason I disagree is, aside from about collection, so I think about collection uh, just takes us outside constitutionality on the grounds that it's a general warrant once you're scanning all traffic. So that very consistency is what raises Fourth Amendment specter for about collection. So setting that to the side and focusing on incidental collection, uh, the real question here uh, is one of procedure um, and under Fourth Amendment and the fact that there is no warrant required at any point in order to keep this data, query this data, use this data for totally unrelated criminal purposes. That's where the constitutional issue is and the constitutional question. So for me, this really kicks it to the warrant requirement and how the current rules do not allow for those protections that otherwise are built into the Fourth Amendment. So this is, this is a segue to the next question, uh, Jamil. Uh, as Laura mentioned, in her overview, and as she just reiterated again, one of the, probably the major issue of contention in the legislation is whether some sort of legal process ought to be required before the government is allowed to take the 702 data that it's collected and look through it for information about a U.S. person, uh, which people refer to as U.S. person queries. Um, why shouldn't there be a warrant or some kind of court process uh, uh, before that happens? Well, you know, I, mean, I, think, I think, Bob, it goes back to um, how we ended up here um, and how we ended up with 702. And it goes back to the pre-9-11 era and the reforms that we made in response to the attacks of 9-11, uh, the, the concerns raised by the 9-11 Commission report and the uh, WMD Commission after that. And essentially, the concern there, and if you all recall, there was the coal bombing that was being investigated by FBI investigators. There was uh, al-Qaeda activities being investigated by CIA overseas. Uh, we had this. We had this back and forth where there were that was hard to communicate between the folks working the intelligence investigation and the criminal investigation because we had the courts had essentially created what what they referred to as a wall of separation between criminal matters and intelligence matters. And that wall, although it had gates and doors in it to exchange information, led to lawyers and 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 intelligence analysts having a very hard time sharing information. And there are debates about how much we knew and what we knew when and whether had information been adequately shared. And there's a famous email recounted in the 9-11 Commission report which says, you know, one day this whole wall thing, having to throw information over the wall, is going to get us in trouble. People are going to die and there's going to be hell to pay. And that day came true. And the 9-11 Commission report told us it is the job of the government and legislation subsequent to that, including 702, said it is the job of the government to connect the dots. The problem with a warrant for US person queries is, it says, great, you need to connect the dots, but we're gonna lock those dots in a closet. Dots you lawfully collected under statutorily authorized procedures, reviewed by a court, we're gonna take all those dots you collected, we're gonna put them in a locked cabinet, and you can't touch that cabinet, you might be able to look in it, but you can't read, the, you can't open the dots up and figure out how they connect until you go to a judge and get a warrant. Well, that makes no sense. How do you connect the dots when you can't even pull them out and put them together without a, without a, pri a prior court order. And so I think the real challenge that sort of the warrant, imposing a warrant requirement on searching for U.S. person queries creates is it essentially rebuilds that wall between criminal matters and foreign intelligence matters. Now, we could do that, right? It's been 17 years since 9-11, and we've forgotten, the, the, I think a lot of us have forgotten the, the, just the, the challenge that we faced after that investigation, the fact that Two terrorists sat in San Diego, Nawaf al-Hazmi, Khalid al-Midar, who we saw at al-Qaeda meetings in Kuala Lumpur, sat in San Diego in their true names, 
and we never found them. When we started to look for them, and the wall and the wall was sort of, the, we went through the gate, it was too late. It was days before the 9-11 attack. And so I really, really worry about what putting this war requirement in would do, and the recreation of that wall, because we're 17 years removed and have just sort of forgotten the lessons we learned. And so that's my concern. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think it bears repeating that what we are talking about here is lawfully collected information. It's saying to the FBI, you have a file cabinet full of information. You cannot touch that cabinet until you go get a warrant from a judge. That's crazy. Um, Laura, um, I believe that you have a different view of this. Um, and I remind you that you have only three minutes. <laughs> you can't bait and switch, right? You can't. Um, but but you... let me ask you specifically in, in, to, um, to focus on the last point Jamil made, which is... This is a circumstance where the government has already lawfully acquired the information. What's the justification for saying you've got this information, but before you look at it, in this particular context, you need a warrant? You can look at it for other contexts, but in this particular context, you need a warrant. Yeah, so, so you can't bait and switch, right? You can't say we're collecting this for foreign intelligence, and by the way, we're going to use it to go after low-level you know, pot dealers in this particular state, right? You, just, you can't collect it outside the requirements of the Fourth Amendment that would otherwise apply and then move it over and use it never having gone to a court to demonstrate probable cause of any criminal activity. Uh, by doing that, what you do is you essentially turn this into, first of all, a general warrant, and second of all, an end run around the Fourth Amendment. Um, and that's the concern. Total Total surveillance would be great, Jamil. Uh, we would know everything going on, and we would have a fundamentally different society. That's what the founders worried about. That's the tyrannical power that we're trying to protect against. So if you look at where the foreign intelligence exceptions have appeared, in Verdugo Urquidez, for instance, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist said the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. The people is the American people. Um, now, Kennedy joined the majority to give the critical fifth vote, but the reason he allowed for a foreign intelligence exception was practical. We don't have judges overseas that can issue warrants, right? We don't know what the standard of reasonableness might be overseas. And we might not be able to cooperate with the local law enforcement in these areas. Same thing in 2000 in the Southern District of New York in U.S. First Bin Laden. The court said, look, it's hard to protect the international consequences. Foreign officials might be seen as complicit with the United States. You risk notifying your enemies of what you're doing. And there's this potential for a breach of security. And so there are very practical reasons when you're dealing overseas, trying to get foreign intelligence information, not to require a warrant. But when you hold all the information, it's inside the United States, and it's only U.S. officials that are looking at this, then you're in a very different world. And if you can't go to a court and demonstrate that that individual is either a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, that they're engaged in some sort of serious criminal activity directly related to foreign intelligence, then you have not met the standards of the Fourth Amendment. Thank you for listening today. We're going to end this podcast here, but if you want to hear the rest of the panel, please visit our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, to find the full video of the FISA panel from the 27th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law. And please join us next week for a new episode. And remember that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security has two events coming up in Washington, D.C. A brown bag lunch on February 22nd with Chief Judge D. Brooke Smith of the Third Circuit 
Circuit Court of Appeals and Professor Ronald Collins of the University of Washington Law School. And on March 9th, there'll be a breakfast where we will hear from National Counterintelligence and Security Center Director William Evanina. And now podcasts are great, but remember, social networking isn't really networking. So please join us at one of those breakfasts. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. From all of us here, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec.